preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth, will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Our Father, you've called us to love the appearing of your Son, and so we are studying your prophetic schedule. May it be more than just information. May it grip our hearts and change our lives. Thank you for the special reward, the crown that you give for those who look with a sense of earnestness for the return of Jesus. We just want to pause and thank you for 40 years of your faithfulness to this church. We had no place of our own to gather No campus, no buildings in Grays or Graniteville, no missionaries, and look what you've done. You are so good, so kind to give us a places to meet, hundreds of missionaries to partner with. As we sing this morning, to God be the glory, great things you've done. But help us, our Father, not to be arrogant or proud, knowing that there are many other good churches just like ours all across America that now have forsaken your Son. So help us to pay close attention this morning. I pray that you would use this message, not just in my own heart, but for all who are here. So please come, help me, Spirit of God, fill me and anoint me and speak through me. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you on this, the 40th anniversary of our church, to turn to the book of Jude. If you're new to the Bible, just find the last book, Revelation, and right before that is the book of Jude. It's just one page in many of our Bibles, so it would be very easy to miss. If you're joining us for the first time, we are in between a verse-by-verse exposition of a book of the Bible, and right now I'm doing a series that I've entitled God's Prophetic Schedule. And as you can see there on the outline... I want to speak today on staying the course, and I can't think of a greater book in all the New Testament that addresses this subject. We are warned in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. And so last week, we began the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, and we looked at Jesus' words concerning false Christs and false prophets, and that many will fall away. And so throughout the Olivet Discourse, we will at times step away and zoom in on one particular theme that Jesus spoke to, and that's what we're going to do today. Now, the book of Acts, we often call it the Acts of the Apostles. The book of Jude could easily be titled the Acts of the Apostates. Acts describes the teachings of godly men who sought to build the church, whereas the book of Jude deals with ungodly men who want to destroy the church. Acts highlights the work of God, especially at the beginning of the church age. Jude highlights especially the work of the evil one. 
and all who follow him at the end of the age. And there's growing antagonism and apostasy. Now, when we speak of apostasy, it's important that we define terms. Apostasy is not just an atheist or an agnostic or someone who has embraced one of the isms of the world. The New Testament has a much narrower definition and concept. It applies specifically to those people who have heard the truth of Christianity. They've been exposed to the gospel of our salvation. They walked up to the edge of that gospel. They at least intellectually appeared to embrace that gospel. But with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. And so they ended up falling away from that gospel and rejecting the truth. And I've never seen, like I've seen in the last few years, what we're seeing today in America and across the world. I've been in the ministry now for 45 years. And in the last four or five years, I'm not talking about liberal Protestantism or apostate Catholicism. I'm talking about Bible-believing evangelical churches where pastors, associate pastors, evangelists, missionaries have renounced the faith. I've seen more people in the last five years do that than I had in the prior 40 years before that. And we should not be totally surprised by this because the Bible warns that this will happen at the end of the age. We studied last time in Matthew 24 and in verse 10, Jesus said, and at that time many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. So this coming apostasy, it's the Greek word apostasia, it means to fall away. It's going to be exasperated at the end of the age and seeds are being planted today for the apostasy of all apostasies that we're still going to study, God willing, in this series that will happen during the time of the Great Tribulation. But it doesn't just happen. The ground is being plowed and fertilized and planted with bad seed to make it happen in the future. And so we live in a day where people have adopted church growth strategies. We've gone to 20-minute preaching in evangelical churches. And most of it is not expository in nature where you actually need a Bible to follow the sermon. That used to be typical in evangelical churches. Now it's exceptional. And it has put us in a pickle. And now things are gray and people don't know what's right, what's wrong. There's really no gray in Scripture. There's contrast all the way through Scripture beginning in the first book of the Bible. There's the tree of life and then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's the Mount of Blessing, there's the Mount of Cursing. There's eternal life, there's eternal death. There's the wisdom of God, there's the wisdom of man. There's the kingdom of the Lord, there's the kingdom of the evil one. And when you choose the methods and the methodologies of the world to grow the church, you set that church up for disaster. Look, when I first came as the pastor, there used to be a... A uh, man who wrote in the local gazette, I don't know that the newspaper even exists anymore, maybe it does online, but um, in either case, uh, he would have a religious section on Fridays and he would talk about churches. When I read some of those articles, I was just amazed that some of these once great churches now had totally turned from the faith. So lest we be arrogant, and think that that could not happen to the people of Community Bible Church, we need to heed what the book of Jude says. 
So how can an individual be assured in the days that we live in? How do we as members, and some of you are teenagers, and if Jesus doesn't come and I die before Jesus comes, some of you are going to be the leaders in the church. If not this church, another church. And you need to listen. This is very, very important. Now, 30 years ago, I preached 14 messages in the book of Jude. (laughs) You won't find them online because the tape quality was so poor. We just discarded them. Well, today, God willing, I'm going to preach the whole book of Jude. So I'm going to do it in one sermon, but I'll obviously be limited in terms of all the detail I can go to. With that said, uh, if you're using the note-taking outline, I want us to think about Jude's distress about apostasy. Jude is distressed over apostasy, and he unfolds that distress in the first four verses. Notice how he introduces this letter in verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, if you look in the margin of the New American Standard, you'll see a little footnote for Jude, and you go out into the margin, and it says literally, Judas. This is technically the epistle of Judas, but kind of like Rob can be Bob, Judas can be Jude. And so most English Bibles render this the book of Jude. But when you go to other countries, I've been in other places, and I say, well, let's turn to the book of Jude, and the translator will look at me, hmm, the book of Judas. And so for obvious reasons to distinguish this man from Judas Iscariot, most went with the alternate rendering we call it the book of Jude. He describes himself as a bondservant of Jesus. Now there are seven Judes in the New Testament. This particular Jude is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus who became a believer after the resurrection and God used him to write a book of the New Testament. He doesn't say Jude, Jesus' brother. But Jude, a bondservant of Jesus, because all the family relationships at this point had been set aside. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, he's the one who wrote the book of James, we studied that some months back, to those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. You say, why is this opening verse so important and so remarkable? Because all the way through this epistle, he's going to speak about those who will turn away from the faith and how it is going to be exasperated, as we'll see in this series, as we move to the very last of the last days. And so it might be that someone would ask, well, could I fall away from the faith? Not if you are genuinely saved. And so he puts bookends on this discussion on apostasy, verse 1 In verses 24 and 25, describe our great security. Notice he's referring to born-again people, to those who are the called, beloved in God. Now understand, your salvation did not begin with you because the Bible says by nature there is none who seeks God, not even one. It always starts with God. And the term called in the Bible is used in two ways. There's a general call and there's a specific call. For instance, of the general call, Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or in John 7, 37, he said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This is that general external call of God that God puts on all people because God wishes none should perish but all to come to repentance. And that general call can be ignored, it can be disdained, it can be resisted, or it can be responded to. 
And when you respond, that external general call becomes an internal call that leads to an unbroken chain, as Romans 8 teaches, bringing you all the way to glory. So Paul will say in Romans 1, 7, for instance, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. You know, if you are saved today, you're a saint. You can call me St. Carl. I'll take the title. Because God gives it to me. Every true born-again Christian is a saint. It's not some group that's reserved by, you know, someone after they die that, you know, some guy who has a, a halo behind his head. No, these are the believers in the New Testament. Might be a brand new believer, might be an inconsistent believer, might be a long-held believer, might be a strong believer. All Christians are called saints. To the Corinthians, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who've been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Now, you may not understand all that, but just understand that God has declared you holy if you've put your faith in Jesus. It's a position you have, and so you are a saint. And notice how else he describes you, beloved in God the Father. You are beloved in God the Father. So these called are described with this verb, beloved. It's a perfect tense, if you remember high school English, and sadly most of us don't. It describes an, an action in the past with unchanging results on into the future. So once you're beloved, you're beloved forever. He that believes has everlasting life, and everlasting life cannot end. And so this verse says we are kept for Christ Jesus because God is the one who does the calling, God is the one who does the loving, and so God is the one who does the keeping. Look, I would do anything I would need to do to protect and preserve my children. And I'm just human. When you are born again, you become something you were not before, a child of God. To those who've received him, to them he's given the right to be called children of God. And God will keep you, he will protect you. And so Jude can say, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Now with that brief introduction, now in verse 3, Jude speaks of the compulsion in writing this epistle. What's his compulsion? What's his motivation for writing this letter? Notice, beloved. Now, this is not a verb. This is a noun. So we're beloved of God. But now, because we're beloved of God as saints, we are a member of the beloved. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. So he's going to write about the common salvation that all true Christians share. This word common is koinos. We get our word koinonia from it. Most of you know that koinonia is fellowship. And so there's a common uh, salvation that we share. Everyone needs the same salvation, whether you're a big sinner or a small sinner. In God's eyes, we have all sinned and fallen short, and we're equally in need. While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity. You should circle that word necessity. It's important. To write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Circle the article, the word the the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. In other words, Jude would say, now he's going to write about our great salvation by grace through faith, about the power of the blood, about the second birth, about new life, about the promises of being delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. But instead, the Spirit of God, by necessity, 
wanted me to write a different letter. That word necessity means to put pressure on, to compress, to compel. The Spirit of God put pressure on Jude to change the direction in which he was going. And God often does things like that. It's easier to direct a moving object than one that's stationary. And sometimes we're headed down a road thinking this is the will of God, and God is able to redirect us because our desire is to please him. So notice, secondly, this distress, these false teachers, is so real. He wants to write this letter to alert us, to call us to action. And so, secondly, we speak about the need to contend for the faith, the need to contend for the faith. He says, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now, please note that we're to contend for the faith. Again, you've circled the article. He's not speaking here about inactive faith, about believing God for some particular need in your life. But when you see the word faith with the article, it's referring to this body of truth we call the Bible. I am holding in my hands this morning the faith. That's what we have before us. So Paul could say in Galatians 1.23, he who once uh, persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy as he gives his testimony. And this faith, we're told, was delivered or handed down to the saints. And this verb, handed down, refers to something that's completed, never to be done again. It has been delivered once for all. Now, the word once is the word hapox. Many times you've heard preachers and theologians speak of a hapox legomena, a word that appears only once in the Bible. Well, this word halpox refers once, never, ever, ever to be repeated again. The Living Bible trying to capture the essence of the word says, once for all time. You've heard me say many times as your pastor, if it's new, it's not true. There are no new doctrines, no new books of the Bible, no new morals, no new encyclical letters, no new papal ex-cathedra dogmas. We have a faith that was delivered once and for all. It's a finished finished revelation, and we are warned at the end of the Bible not to add to it and not to subtract to it. The faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The Reformer said it with these two Latin words written on the front of this pulpit. Sola Scriptura. That is, Scripture alone is our final authority. And we are to earnestly contend, epagonizomai, you can hear the word agony. We are to agonize for the faith. Paul uses this word when he says, fight the good fight. It's the same word, agonize for the faith. We are to earnestly contend for the faith. John Calvin used to say, if a dog barks when his master is attacked and the man does nothing, then he's a coward. And if someone attacks our master, God's holy and inspired word, and we do nothing, then we are cowards. We are to contend for the faith. Notice now the warning about certain persons. The warning about certain persons. For certain persons, anthropoi, you could render it certain people, have crept in on notice. Now those words, have crept in on notice, is one word in the original. It takes that many words in English to render it. And this word is found only once, the hapax legomena, only once in the New Testament. Sometimes if you're doing a word study, you look at that Greek word and say, well, let's see where it's used in other passages in the New Testament. 
and it can shed some light on it. Or sometimes you can go to a translation of the Hebrew scriptures. It's called the Septuagint, the Old Testament in Greek. Well, the word is never found in the Septuagint. So you have to go to first century Koine Greek to see some of its usages. It was used of someone who worked in a uh, law court as a clever lawyer, and he would just drop in a word unsuspectingly, and then he would come back later in his argument to key off of that word. He would drop in that word, and there are people who creep in it was used also in Koine Greek, a Greek of someone who was removed from a country, but then he would creep in back over the border. And so what he is saying here is there will be people who will come into the church, they'll creep in very stealthily. They won't say, I'm a false teacher, I'm an apostate. They'll come in the garb of Christianity, and they will in the process very often destroy a church. Jesus said this in Matthew 16, 6, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And as you know, the word leaven can be used uh, symbolically in the Bible of sin, or it can be used symbolically of teaching. And Jesus is just saying, beware, watch out for the false teaching of the Pharisees. And that's what an apostate does. He brings in false teaching. Notice, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So he's describing their character first as ungodly. That doesn't mean they don't speak about God. In fact, they most often speak about God. And very often, again, we'll use the language of historic Christianity. They just have a different dictionary in which to define those terms. The word ungodly is a word that means without reverential awe. And so the basic missing ingredient in an apostate is he has no genuine biblical fear of God. You should write out in the margin, no reverence. He has no reverence. Of their conduct, he says, they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Licentiousness refers to unbridled lust. And so the Pope has become squishy on homosexuality. Joel Osteen, when interviewed by Oprah Winfrey, denied homosexuality as a sin. And now evangelical Christians across the world, they're, hmm, well, you know. Why? Because this is such a widespread sin. People think, I have a brother, I have a sister, I have a cousin, I have a parent that have gone this way. And certainly don't want to hate them. And so Nancy Pelosi has come out saying that evangelical Christians like me are hateful. And Joseph Biden, our president, in his June 15th, 2022 executive order, says that, referring to these who believe the Bible, that we're harmful and destructive. Actually, it's Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and our vice president who just has had three different meetings using her preferred pronouns. They're the hateful ones. Look, it is loving to tell people the truth. It ultimately comes down to either this book is the word of God or it is not. 
And if it is the word of God, it is clear what God thinks about it. But you preach against sin, and you're considered today hateful, judgmental, legalistic, bigoted, homophobic, all kinds of titles. But they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. So in addition to their character and their conduct, he underscores now their creed. Right out in the margin, they have no rules. So they have uh, no reverence, they have no restraint, they turn grace into sin, and they have no rule. They deny our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. They've either denied his deity or they have rebelled against his lordship. And so what have they done? They, they've humanized God. They've molded him in their own image and the way they want him to be. And sadly, sometimes under the guise of scholarship or church growth, this is happening across America. Now listen, if you're truly saved, which we're going to say, you would never do this. 1 John 2, 19, if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But the fact that they went out from us shows they were not really of us to begin with. If you have it, salvation, you can't lose it. And if you lost it, you never really had it to begin with. And so Jude would just say, don't look simply at their creed but also look at their conduct and look at their character. And again, he reminds us they come into the church unsuspectingly. And so it appears they have a right creed. But at some point, there's a turn that takes place in their life. They have revelation. They have light. They just don't have new life. They, they believe here like the parable of the sower. They receive the word with joy. They believe for a while. They've come up to the edge of salvation, but they haven't stepped into the kingdom. And so when hardship comes, they end up turning away from the faith. Luke 8, 13 teaches. And so what do they do? Well, um, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5 says they hold to a form of godliness. Form only. There's form, but there's no reality. Although they've denied its power. Or listen to these words in 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. There'll be a denial of sound doctrine. So if you want to embrace a particular kind of sin in your lifestyle, or you don't want some preacher preaching against some kind of sin, what do you, you find a preacher who agrees with you. <laughs> He'll tickle your ears. He'll tell you what you want to hear instead of preaching the truth of Scripture. Look, I would, I would much rather be divided over truth than united over error. I'm going to preach the truth, and if it divides, it should divide. It divides truth from mistakes, from sin. Divides true believers from false believers. And again, this is a mark of the end of the age, 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith. So he's not speaking simply of the last days. He's speaking about latter times, a term used in the New Testament for the end of the age, the last of the last days. In latter times, some will fall away from the faith. They will pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. When the president of the United States said a girl could become a boy and a boy could become a girl, that's a doctrine of a demon. You say you're getting political, preacher. No, I'm preaching God's word. And God has called me to address moral issues when they enter into the political realm. It's not an issue of Democrat or Republican. It's an issue of what is right and what is true. Listen to what 2 Peter 2 says. 
But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Why? Because the atonement is unlimited. Jesus died for all men, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. There'll be a denial also of the fact that he will literally return from heaven. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking saying, where is the promise of his coming? And as we will see when we come down to verse 18, this epistle will also say there's a denial of moral values. So in the last time, there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts or desires. And so while apostasy is nothing new, in the latter times it is going to grow, and it is growing in our day like we have never witnessed before in the history of America. Now that's Jude's distress over apostasy. Let's think also about Jude's description of apostasy. Jude's description of apostasy. Jude begins by describing the past judgment of apostates. He begins by describing the past judgment of apostates. So to show us God's attitude towards apostates who are guilty of apostasy, Jude illustrates with three Old Testament examples, with Jews, with angels, and with Gentiles. First with Jews in verse 5. Look at the text. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things, once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So God delivered the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The final miraculous sign that God required was blood be posted on the doorposts. Now, if you put gold and jewels and diamonds on the doorposts, the death angel would have taken them out, the firstborn. If you even put an unblemished, spotless lamb in front of the doorpost, the death angel would have taken them out. No, they had to slaughter the lamb. And they put blood. And it only required one believer to take God at his word. And that spared the firstborn. But that didn't mean that everyone who came out of Egypt was a believer. Because as you read the Exodus, you discover that there are people who were outwardly delivered out of the land of Egypt, but inwardly they were lost. And so if you remember the rebellion of Korah and all his godless gang who rebelled against the living God and they were literally sucked down alive into hell. And so there's a lot of people today who, quote unquote, come out of Egypt. Egypt, of course, is used symbolically in the scripture. It's used literally of a place called Egypt, but it's also used symbolically of the world. They've come out of the world, so to speak. They join a church. They come down front. A preacher can only take them at their word that they understand the plan of salvation. And assuming they do, and they say, I want to be baptized, you baptize them, and And then they end up apostatizing. They turn away from the faith. And understand, not all unbelievers are apostates, but all apostates are unbelievers. And he's describing here a type that come into the church, sometimes as leaders, sometimes as preachers. They creep in unnoticed to do damage on the inside. But because their conversion is not real, they end up abandoning the fellowship. Joseph Smith was one such person, the founder of Mormonism. He heard clearly, explicitly the plan of salvation, but he rejected it. Why? Because a man's theology is often dictated by his morality. I hope you know he had over 40 wives. 
And so he wrote a book that gave credence to his sexual immorality. He became an apostate. He heard the truth, walked up to the edge of the truth, rejected the truth, and because of that, he manufactured a lie. And so an apostate is someone who's received light, but they haven't received life. They've heard the written word, but they haven't embraced the living word of whom that book is all about. So having illustrated with some Jews who came out of Egypt, now he turns to angels. Look at verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So he's reminded us of some angels who apostatize. It seems almost unbelievable that some bright, shining, glorious, magnificent minister of God, servant of God, could turn away from the living God. So who is he referring to here? Obviously, this is not the fall of Satan when he took one-third of the angels with him because he's describing a particular group of angels, if you have it underlined, who are in eternal bonds. Satan... And his minions have freedom to wage war in the heavenly places. Daniel 10, Ephesians 6, describe that. But whatever it is, it's familiar to them because he opens this with, now I desire to remind you. In other words, he's reminding them of something they already know. Well, where is this found? Obviously in the Bible. Verse 5 refers to a scriptural event. Verse 7 refers to a scriptural event. So you can expect verse 6 to refer to a scriptural event, especially since he's speaking of the faith delivered once for all. And these angels in verse 6, we're told, did not stay in the realm of authority in the sphere in which God created them to function. They abandoned, the text says, their proper abode. Notice verse 7. What did they do? Notice, just as Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's drawing a, drawing a parallel. Now, there, there's a parallel between what the people of Sodom did and what these angels did. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. And so the text says they are exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So whatever Sodom and Gomorrah did, there is a parallel between what these angels did as introduced by the two words, just as. They committed gross immorality and they went after strange, heteros. We get our word hetero from it. They went after strange, a different kind, a different nature of flesh. Now there's only one passage in all the Bible that even gives hint to what this is, and I'll not labor it because I preached a whole sermon on it earlier in this series, but let me just dust off your minds with Genesis 6-4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. Now, please note what it does not say. It does not say the sons of men came into the daughters of men, but the B'nai Elohim, a term used in the Old Testament of angels, the sons of God went into the daughters of men. They bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now, again, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and they render this the angels of God. Why? Because that's what's in view. Now, we know from what Jesus said that angels cannot procreate with other angels and produce angel babies, and in that way, we will be like them in the resurrection. However, these angels did take on human form, and they always appear as males in the Bible. And they cohabitated with the daughters of men as much as the angels in Sodom and Gomorrah 
recognized the legitimate possibility for the men of Sodom to try to cohabitate with them. Now, again, I preached a sermon on it, the days of Noah and Jesus' return, because Jesus makes a parallel between the immorality and the perversion of Lot's and Noah's day with what is going to happen at the end of the age. Now, don't miss Jude's point. He's giving this illustration that was common knowledge, and by the way, for the first 1,500 years of church history, it was the only way this text was understood. Now, we've come up with some bizarre meanings in the last hundred years or so under the guise of scholarship, but it's just wrong. He's reminding them of a text that they knew, that these angels apostatized and that God had created them for a specific purpose, never to cohabitate with humans, but they committed this vile, heinous sin. Now, beyond the profession of these Israelites, in verse 5, and beyond the position that these angels fell out of, now in verse 7, he speaks of Gentiles who were granted a special possession, but they fell away from it. Look, um, look what he says. He's, He's describing here the men of Sodom who like these angels. So let's ask a question. Did the Gentiles living in Sodom and Gomorrah have some knowledge of the gospel so that they could fall away Or turn away from the truth? And of course, the answer is yes on several levels. Number one, we know that one of Noah's son was alive during the time Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. We know in addition that they had been given special revelation and and, uh, special revelation through creation and through conscience. Look, the heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord. How, how, How wonderful was Sodom and Gomorrah? It was one of the most... Precious, magnificent pieces of real estate on the earth. In fact, it was compared to the Garden of Eden. And that should have all by itself caused them to turn to God, but rather they suppressed the truth of God given in creation. Not to mention Romans 2.15 teaches every even pagan Gentile has the law of God written in their hearts so they know the difference between right and wrong. They can suppress that knowledge. They can scar and sear and callous their conscience, but nonetheless they have it initially. And so we know from these passages that in spite of the profession of the Jews who left Egypt, in spite of the incredible position that God had given to angels, and in spite of the incredible possession he had given these Gentiles, they turned away and they took the grace of God and they turned it into licentiousness. What a warning to the LGBTQIA movement because they are an example, Sodom, of those who are undergoing eternal fire, the punishment of eternal fire. So don't let anyone ever tell you you're being judgmental and unloving to warn people of a sin that is now permeating the American culture. If a preacher doesn't preach against this, he's weak, he's not a man who's called of God, at least he's not doing what God has called him to do, And he's helping to spread the sin of homosexuality instead of shining a bright light with the Holy Scripture. And so in our day, think about what has happened. It was once illegal in all 50 states. It was considered a sin. And then in the 70s and 80s, the American Psychiatric Organization said it's not a sin, it's a sickness. 
And then we went from calling it a sin and a sickness for it to be called socially acceptable behavior. In fact, we've made it a virtue in our day. There's a moral meltdown that's going on in our nation and churches are helping to feed it and that they're turning the grace of God into licentiousness. So having described their past judgment, be on your outline, Jude describes the present characteristics of apostates. He now describes the present characteristics of apostates. Verse 8 begins, yet in the same way, and you will quickly ask in the same way as what? In the same way we saw the children of Israel turn away, in the same way we saw angels and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah apostatize, even so people can apostatize today. In other words, the decisions and the evil practices that characterize apostates in the past will characterize apostates in the present. Notice, in the same way, these men also by dreaming. Now, if you have the King James, it renders it filthy dreamers. And you will see the word filthy is in italics, indicating it's not part of the original Greek, but it's implied, and rightly so. It's a good rendering, and it's actually a noun, so that I think they capture it maybe a little bit better than the New American Standard. Filthy dreamers. And that's what they do. They, in contrary to the pure, unadulterated truth of Holy Scripture, they come up with their own filthy imaginations, wicked things. They are filthy Dreamers, they come up with things that are beyond the realm of imagination. And that's what we're seeing happening in our nation, where men are calling good evil and evil good. And if you call good good and evil evil, then you're the bad person. Look, all truth has been given us a plumb line, and it's called the faith delivered once for all. We have a plumb line. It comes down to, in the end, either this book is the Word of God or it's not. Now, if you doubt that, read my booklet. I'll give it to you for free, How to Prove the Bible is True. You can find it on Amazon. If you're live streaming, you can write me, and I'll send it to you. In the same way, these men also, by dreaming, notice, defile the flesh. Now, understand, there are many unbelievers who are moral people. They're happily married. They're good citizens. They pay their taxes. They work hard all week. But he is describing here a category of, a category of people called apostates who were exposed to the truth of Scripture, rejected the truth of Scripture, and so they have believed a lie, and they are encouraging others in that lie, in that lie of filthy indulgence. So we might ask a question here. Why would an apostate be more prone to this kind of filthy imaginations, this kind of sensuality than, say, an ordinary unbeliever for the simple reason that he had the truth and he said no to the truth? There are many highly moral unbelievers still left in the United States of America, and they've never heard the plan of salvation. This is a man who heard the truth, and whenever you lose the truth, because you reject it, your life changes. You begin to think with an upside-down, depraved, reprobate mind. In Paul's words, they have seared their own conscience as with a branding iron, 1 Timothy 4.2. In describing these people, in 2 Peter 2.20, Peter said, For if, and by the way, 2 Peter, that whole chapter is a perfect, not a perfect parallel, but it is a parallel to the book of Jude. Because the major subject in 2 Peter are these who were bought by the master but did not receive the master. Again, apostates. And at the end of that chapter, he says, 
For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. So he's describing someone who's come to a knowledge of the truth. They sat in a church like this. They heard the plan of salvation. They heard salvation was not earned or worked for, but it's by grace alone. They came to a knowledge of the truth, but they didn't do anything with that knowledge. And so he will liken them to a pig that's all shined up but goes back to the mud, or like a dog whose nature is not fundamentally changed, and so he goes back and he eats his vomit. These are people who have been exposed to truth, but they weren't changed by it. And so what happens? Their latter state is worse than the first. Hey, look, many of you know that Audrey and I worked with college students for over a decade. And we shared the gospel literally with thousands of college students. And we would meet some of these kids who had come from Bible-believing churches, just like this but who had obviously not genuinely come to faith in Christ. And I witnessed to more than one of those. But then after a while, because of their unwillingness, they came to a knowledge of the truth, but didn't do anything with it. And they sit under some liberal professor who begins to mock and make fun of the Bible and tell you why you shouldn't believe it, why it's full of errors and full of myth and on and on and on. And that's all the excuse they need. And now they have a justification for their sexual immorality that once bothered them or their use of drugs, smoking dope, drinking booze. And then they come back and they say, you know, I, I don't believe what this church believes anymore. I have a new set of beliefs. This is 2 Peter 2.20. This is the book of Jude being fleshed out. Now, in thinking about the characteristics of apostates, not only do they defile the flesh, he also says they despise authority. Let's read verse 8. Yet in the same way as these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority. It goes back to verse 4, who says they deny their only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't forget, Jude is not speaking of, um, of a believer. He's speaking of these who have crept in unnoticed into the church. It might be in the guise of a seminary professor. It might be in the guise of a pastor, a missionary, an evangelist, just an ordinary church member, so to speak. But like the devil, rebellion is filling their hearts, and they don't like what this book says. They reject it. They, they push against it. They despise the authority of the Holy Scripture. In addition, they disgrace God's glory. Number three, they defile the flesh. They despise authority. They disgrace God's glory. Look at verse eight. Yet in the same manner, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and notice, revile. Circle that word, revile. You should have three words circled. Defile, reject, and revile angelic majesties. Now those two words, angelic majesties, if you have the NASB with marginal notes, it literally says, it brings you out into the margin, it says glories. You see that? Literally glories. It's from the word doxa. We get our word doxology from it. It's usually translated glory in the Bible. And this word revile is the word blasphemeo. You can hear our word blaspheme or blasphemy in it. And so the Greek literally reads, they blaspheme glories. 
Um, the margin says here they revile glories. And contextually, of course, it's referring to angels. The ESV and the HCSB translation renders it, they blaspheme the glorious ones. The King James says they speak, of evil, they speak evil of dignitaries, again, referring to angels. But here's the point. An apostate is quick to make fun of, reject, revile, and disdain things that God calls holy and right. There's nothing sacred to them. So we see these drag queens coming into the public schools in America and into the public libraries. Nothing's bad. Nothing's unholy. It's all acceptable. And the Speaker of the House goes to one of these parades of drag queens. This is evil beyond evil. Wake up, America. We are in a moral meltdown. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And so to help us to understand the fact that they should tremble instead of revile holy things, he illustrates with Michael the archangel in verse 9. But Michael... The archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this specific event is not recorded in Scripture. So how do we know about it? God gave it to Jude as part of the revelation of Scripture. Now, there are two ways. Some say, well, there's a quote here in the book of Enoch and another quote from the Assumption of Moses. Nothing could be further from the truth. God doesn't quote pagan books. But what he does do is that there are sometimes oral traditions. And occasionally, God will take an oral tradition and he'll put his stamp on it and say, that oral tradition is true. And so, this either came by oral tradition or by direct revelation to Jude. In either case, it's true, though we don't find it in the Old Testament. Now, we do know, if you remember in the Old Testament, that Moses committed a sin unto death to physical death. And so he was not blessed to enter into the promised land. And so in Deuteronomy 34, 5, and 6, we're told that when Moses died, so Moses, the servant of Yahweh, the Lord died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, that is Yahweh God, buried him. By the way, he didn't cremate him. He buried him. That's God's way. In the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. So God performs this burial service. Maybe he said, Michael, get the angelic shovel and dig a hole for Moses. And in the process of it, I can only speculate because we're not giving the details, but we know there was a dispute over his body. The devil wanted it. Why do you suppose he wanted it? Because Moses was such a great man. He was um, the prophet who was a picture of the coming prophet. And if you remember when the children of Israel, years later, you can read about it in 2 Kings 18, remember that brazen serpent that Moses held up and whoever would look would live and it becomes a picture of Jesus, look and live at the cross and you'll instantly be saved as they were instantly delivered from the snake bites. What do they do with that brazen serpent? Centuries later, they're worshiping it. And the devil probably knew that he could make Moses' body some object of adoration, just like some places of the world, they worship and venerate the so-called vial of breast milk that comes from the Virgin Mary, or the skull of the Apostle Paul, or the fingernails of people. It's unbelievable, some of the things. 
So Jude just calls attention to this, what Michael did. Michael, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Christ, he did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Jude's point is, is that if Michael, the greatest of God's angels, the archangel, if he didn't even speak with uncertain terms, but he spoke in holy reverence where he himself didn't even directly rebuke the devil, but let God rebuke him. He's just drawing a, a, a gross difference between the two. And people do the same today. They speak unholy about holy things. They make fun of Mosaic office, authorship of the Torah. Oh, Moses didn't write it. There's five authors. That's taught in virtually every classroom in America and every college campus. JEPD theory. What did Jesus say? Jesus said Moses wrote it. Or, uh, you know, you, you, you're, you're a sexist to say that marriage is only between a man and a woman. That's what Jesus taught. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his own, and the two shall become one. Or, or you're repressive when you say that God's ideal is for a woman to be a worker at home. Not to put her kids in daycare. My hat is off to women who have to do that. But that's not God's ideal. Oh, you preach that, you'll lose your congregation. You may, but you have to preach the truth. I'm preaching for the kids. I care about the kids. I want them to have God's best. A woman called me in the Bible line. She said, if it came between my tithe and paying my bills, what would I, what, what would I do? This is just two weeks ago in the Bible line. Because she's a, a mom working at home. Her husband provi provides. I said, you never rob God. Now, many times I've had this situation. People come in, well, uh, how many cell phones you got in the house? Oh, three. Well, those could go. You on cable? Yeah, you don't need it. See, it's an issue of priorities. It's an issue of sacrifice. It's an issue of, am I really willing to obey what God says? That a woman should be an oikos ergos. But you see, these things are made fun of today. They scoff at these things. Verse 10, but these men, these apostates, revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct. Only animals have instinct. He's comparing them to animals. God gave us free will. But they're like animals, things which they know by instinct. Like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Jesus says they don't even understand the things they say they believe. Verse 11, what are them? For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Baron and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So to help us to understand these, he gives us three illustrations from three Old Testament people, a farmer, a prophet, and a prince of Israel. So think your way through it because it touches every segment of society, prophets, princes, princes and so to speak, common people. First, he describes those who pervert the gospel. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. Now, if you go back and study it, Genesis chapter 4, where Cain is mentioned, he and his brother come to worship the living God. One comes with the best fruit he can come up with, the works of his own hands, and the other comes with a blood sacrifice. Now, in 19th century Germany, they said, well, the difference between the two sacrifices, and this was liberal apostate unbelievers that sadly many seminaries today teach. They said that one came with his best and Cain came with his less than best. You don't know that for one skinny second. 
How do we know that one came on the basis of blood and the other came on the basis of works? Because one of what God had revealed and two, the divine commentary we find in the New Testament. Why did God accept Abel's offering and reject Cain's? Because one came according to the revealed will of God, according to the revelation of God. The other came according to human reason. Now, in Hebrews 11, verse 4, it says, he came on the basis of faith. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. And of course, the Bible teaches in Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Now, where do you get faith? You get faith in the same place everyone has ever gotten faith, through the Word of God. Now, even before the first verse was ever written down by Moses, God still spoke through visions, dreams, different revelations, and He had spoken to the hearts of Adam and Eve. What did they do? They brought fig leaf religion to a holy God. They're in shame. They're in sin. So by the works of their own hands, they create fig leaves to cover their sin. And God steps in and kills Animals, the first death in all of you, in the whole universe. And he kills animals and he clothes them with skins. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so God had revealed how he is to be approached. And so you read all the way through the Old Testament, page after page, Noah comes off the ark, and what does he do? Blood sacrifice. There's the great Passover. There's Abraham on top of Mount Moriah. Everywhere you cut the Old Testament, it bleeds. Why? Because sin deserves death. Therefore, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And one came on the basis of what God had revealed to that point, that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. The other came on the basis of human reason. On top of that, you say, are you sure he knew all that? Absolutely. Let me give you two verses to jot down and think about. One is Luke 11.51. Luke 11.51. Jesus is dealing with the uh, religious leadership in, of his day, and he associates them with those who killed the prophets, with those who shed the blood of righteous men from Abel to Zechariah. What does that tell you? It tells you something you don't know in the Old Testament that Jesus gives us by divine revelation that Abel was a prophet. You say, why is that important? Jot down this verse, Acts 10, 43. There Peter said, all the prophets, that includes Abel, all the prophets preach Jesus. So Abel's offering was a picture, it was a prophecy of what was to come. Now, the Bible is a, an amazing book, and God had made it very, very clear. But you see, an apostate in our day will deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ. They'll say, well, Jesus was a martyr for a cause. There are things we can learn from his life, from the Sermon on the Mount. But they deny the blood atonement, the substitutionary death of Jesus is the only way to get into heaven. Look, there's some 10,000 religions in the world, but there's really only two. That which is true and that which is false. That that comes God's way and that which comes man's way. The way of Cain, it perverts the gospel. But look at the second picture he gives, Balaam, and he prostitutes the gospel. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, these apostates, and for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. The King James says they ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward. The Net Bible says because of greed, they have abandoned themselves to Balaam's error. Now, if you know anything about Balaam, you might want to go home and read Numbers 22 through 25 and Numbers 31. Those three chapters will put it all together for you. 
Here is a man who could speak truth at times. And many times that's what phony preachers do. They speak truth and that's why they can slip in unaware and you think they're okay. But he served for money. He sold out for money. And so in describing him in 2 Peter 2, Peter said, forsaking the way, the right way, they, these apostates, have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And that's exactly what a phony minister does. He's in the ministry for the money. They prostitute the gospel. But he also mentions Korah. And what does Korah do? He prohibits the gospel. Read further into verse 11. Woe to them. They've gone the way of Cain. They've rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, you might want to write over Korah's name, number 16. Number 16. He is illustrating Korah as an unbelieving apostate, like apostates today. And uh, if you remember, speaking of the coming Messiah in Deuteronomy uh, 18 and verse 15, Moses said this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. So Moses, we're told, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said this. And so in the New Testament, they'll say, is he the prophet to come? What are they talking about? Deuteronomy 18, 15. When Peter stands up on Pentecost and says he is the prophet, he's speaking of Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. And so here is this man, Korah, who rebelled against both God's prophet, Moses, and God's priest. He despised that there was a message that came from someone else other than himself, and he despised the fact that there was a ministry that had been entrusted to Aaron that he couldn't enter into. And so what does he do? He gets his godless gang, and he tries to get them to go against Moses, and God takes them out. He knew the truth, but he rejected the truth, and so today he is in hell like Cain is in hell, who is of the evil one, the New Testament teaches, and as his Balaam is in hell. And so God can say, woe to him. Now he's drawing a portrait of an apostate because he wants us to know what can happen in good churches. Now if that were not enough, he then fills in the portrait by giving us five word pictures, five illustrations of the earth, the air, the trees, the sea, and the starry heavens. Look at verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs and your love feast. By the way, we're going to have a love feast this afternoon. Now, we're not going to couple it with the communion services they did in the first century, but they had love feasts. They got together for a big potluck, but this is not a potluck. We're providing the food. You just bring your favorite dessert, if you will, but, but we're going to have a big time, and uh, if you don't like to eat and be with God's people, there's something wrong with you, but in either case, they're hidden, like hidden reefs. Look, if, if you're Driving a boat, I had owned a boat once, and you know, when I bought it, a guy in our church said the best day is the day you buy it and the day you sell it, and he was right. Man, I was in a full sweat out there the whole time, and I'd hit these sandbars, and I didn't know what was hidden, I didn't know that river. It was more fun for me to go out in a boat with Jerry because he knew the river, and I just had to sit there and relax. <laughs> Here's my point. They're like hidden reefs. They're there unsuspecting. And they are ready. They're like a blemish, some translations say. They're ready to sink the gospel ship. That's what they're about. They're dangerous. Not only are they dangerous, they're deceptive. They're like clouds without water carried along by winds. You know, in this part of the world, it's a dry place. Oh, cloud. Rain is coming. Praise God. But it's an empty cloud. And that's the way some of these people are. They can't really satisfy your spiritual thirst because they have no truth. Further, they're 
Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. You know, Christians are often compared to trees who bear fruit. And so here he describes these false teachers who are like trees, like autumn trees without fruit. They're lifeless. They're doubly dead and that they are dead not only in their appearance, but in their inner state, they are dead on the inside. They're like wandering stars. A wandering star just flashes across the sky with no direction. And their ultimate reservation notice is in the black darkness. They have a reservation in hell. So he's describing apostates on three levels. He's highlighting their past judgment, their present characteristics. Third, Jude describes the future judgment of apostates, the future judgment. He now gives us, in verse 14, another illustration of a man by the name of Enoch. I'm almost done. Stay with me. I know you think, oh, I just got a whole nother. I'm almost done. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. By the way, the first prophecy given by God through a man about the return of Jesus was through this individual, Enoch. And if you read Genesis chapter 5, the only place that Enoch is mentioned other than uh, here in these few places in the New Testament, you'll not find that prophecy. You won't find it there. How did Jude know? Again, by divine revelation. Or maybe, again, it was an oral tradition that God put his stamp of approval on, and so he wrote it down in Scripture. Kind of like Peter describes Noah as a preacher of righteousness. You don't know that Noah preached until you come to the New Testament. So, what was his prophecy? Look at it. He's this Enoch who's in the seventh generation from Adam. Why does he say that? Because he wants to distinguish him from another Enoch that's one of Cain's sons. And notice to underscore the fulfillment of the prophecy, Jude uses what linguists call a prophetic past tense. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. He writes it as if it had already happened. That's how sure and certain it is. Isaiah does the same thing in the 53rd chapter. Now, what do we know about Enoch? Well, he had a son by the name of Methuselah. That means when it shall come, he shall die. Literally, it's a compound, huge Hebrew word. When it shall come, he shall die. And of course, the day Methuselah died, excuse me, the year Methuselah died, the flood came. So he had this child, and God told him specifically what to name the child. And you start thinking about the return of the Lord, and it kind of gets some priorities in order. And so from that day on, it says Enoch walked with God. And Enoch walked with God, and then the text says, and he was not, for God took him. Now, interestingly, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation which Jude quotes, or excuse me, the writer of the Hebrews quotes in Hebrews 11 and verse 5. You might want to put that in the margin. It says he was, um, Enoch walked with God and he was not found because God took him up. So God gives us a little divine commentary. You might think, well, it was implied there, but it's specifically stated in Hebrews 11 verse 5. What does that tell you? It tells you that after Enoch was gone, they looked for him. And one of these days, the church will be caught up and they'll look for us, but they won't find us. And so here's this man who uh, walked with God and he's a picture of God's holy angels and those who will come back with him. And further in verse 15, when he comes back, he will execute judgment. Jesus will execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
<laughs> it's going to happen, my friends. They can mock us now. But God is going to bring judgment. Now, don't get arrogant. He's not done yet. Verse 16, these are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. That brings us finally to a defense against apostasy, a defense against it. Now, if we stopped in verse 16, we might get discouraged. You say, well, this is terrible. What are we going to do about it? I want you to notice, beginning in verse 17, there's an exhortation to remember. There's an exhortation to remember. And so notice the very first word of verse 17, it's the word but. He's making a contrast. But, you beloved, ought to remember the words which were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, this is not an option, this is a command. Remember, remember, remember. So the defense against false doctrine is sound doctrine. And he is going to speak here in a moment about how steadfast we are in Jesus Christ. And you need to remember it because when, it's things, when things appear to be falling apart, they're not. They're coming together. They're coming together for what God prophesied would happen at the very end of time. Paul's words are, don't be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Remember the words. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words which were spoken beforehand, verse 18, that they were saying to you, in the last times there will be mockers following after their own ungodly Lost. So don't be surprised by what's happening. God said it would happen. These are the ones, notice verse 19, who cause divisions. Worldly minded. The margin, it says merely natural. You know what a natural man is, right? Natural man is an unsaved man. He is devoid of the spirit. You know, in every church, there are people who cause divisions. They just want to come in and they're like a thorn in your flesh as a pastor. And sometimes when they leave, I think, thank God, that's a blessed subtraction. And I'm being truthful. Because you see, some of these who cause divisions, it's only one of two things. They're either grossly out of fellowship with God, but more often than not, they are unbelievers. They are without the Spirit of God. They know all the right words, but they are spiritually dead, merely natural, worldly-minded and so there's an exhortation to remember. We need to pay attention. Secondly, there is an action to take in verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, there's an action to take. You, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Now, there's one main verb in the text, keep yourselves in the love of God. And there are three participles that get their force from that main verb that in English here, like most participles, end in ing. Did you notice that? You might want to circle them. Because he's trying to help us to understand how to keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, let me pause here for a moment. What does that mean? Understand, you can't do anything to make God love you more, not if you've been saved. And you can't do anything to make God love you any less. Because your lovability, Jesus taught in the high priestly prayer, is with your identity with him. And that's why Jesus can say the father loves his children as much as he loves his son. But because God loves you, he wants to change you, but he also wants us to stay within the sphere of God's love. That's the thought here. Remain in the sphere. Keep yourselves in the sphere of God's love. Look, if I'm in the sun, I can enjoy the warmth of it. But if I'm in the shade of a cold building, I'll shiver. 
And God wants us to experience the benefits of knowing him. It doesn't mean that he stops loving you, but remember, he's dealing with apostasy. And he is reminding us in these final days as things will get worse and worse and worse, make sure you are walking with God Almighty. It's like the prodigal son. The prodigal son went and rejected his father's provisions and went with slopping pigs. Did the father hate the son? No. He looked. He was waiting. He was wanting the son to come back. And that's how it is. It's not that God moves. It's we who are moved. And so we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. How do you do that? Again, there's three participles. First, building. Building yourselves up in the most holy faith. In other words, study the word of God. Not only are we to contend for the faith, but what good is it to contend for the faith if you don't build yourself up in the faith? People say, well, you know, they can't read the Bible anymore in schools, and we don't read it in our homes. They can't pray anymore in schools, and we don't pray in our homes. They can't put the Ten Commandments on the walls anymore, and we don't have them on our walls. We ought to do everything to feed on Holy Scripture. Secondly, praying. Paul will say, praying in the Holy Spirit, as Jude affirms here. In other words, there's a spirit of helplessness. It's not, well, I've got this great knowledge, and that therefore fixes me to walk steadily with God. No, that knowledge is useless if I'm not broken, if I'm not praying in dependence upon the Lord. And then, so he's, again, he's describing, and then notice waiting, waiting. We ought to be waiting. We just read in the pastoral prayer this morning that there's a reward for those who long for his appearing. Why? Because it changes the way you live. And now, finally, just to help us to understand and have perspective, he wants us to have compassion. He says, save others, snatching them out of the fire. So again, he's describing what our attitude, you know, we can be real mad at all these liberals and all the influences that they are making on innocent people. Now look, you can't do anything with an apostate. If he's a true apostate, you can't do anything for him. Now, God ultimately knows the heart, and some people I thought who were apostate were not. But most of the people I thought were apostate were indeed apostate. And so when Paul, but he's an apostle, I understand, Galatians 1, he said, if someone comes preaching a different gospel other than the one that I have delivered, he is to be anathema. It's a Greek word that means damned to hell. Hmm, he said that under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Why was he so strong? Because of the damage, the eternal damage they did. But he recognizes that not everyone who sits under an apostate is an apostate himself. So he says, save others. Well, first he says, have mercy on some who are doubting. So there are some who are just kind of doubting. Have compassion. Care about them. Pray for them. Do everything you can. And then there are some where you have to be a little more dramatic little more forward, save others, snatching them out of the fire. You're a little more direct with them because they're headed towards the eternal fire of judgment. Snatching them out of the fire. Have mercy on some who are doubting, save others. Hey, by the way, that's how John Wesley described himself. Do you remember? He came to Savannah. Have you ever been to that little square in Savannah? I don't know what it's called, but I sat there one afternoon, had a chance to witness to a couple people while my wife was in a store and And here's his statue of John Wesley. He comes to Savannah, Georgia to convert the Indians. But he's lost. He's trapped in religion. He gets on the boat to go back to England. 
he realizes as he meets Moravian believers that he's not a true believer. In the providences of God, he goes into Aldersgate Chapel there in London. He listens to Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans where Luther shares his testimony. And he says, my heart was strangely warmed. And he compares himself. He said from Amos 4.11, I was like a firebrand snatched from the fire. That's what we need to do for some. We need to snatch them from the fire. And on some have mercy with fear. Hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. What does that mean? While you are to have compassion on some who are doubting, while you are to be more compulsive with those who are caught up in a more substantial way, you are to come with a deep sense of caution. Hating the garment that they wear. What does that mean? Well, a man's garment was associated with his persons, just like a, a team shirt represents the team you play for. And some people's garments, so to speak, are polluted by their flesh, by their sinful ways. And it's just saying, look, when you go to rescue some of these people, watch yourself. Paul gives similar admonitions in Galatians 6 1. Watch yourself. In 1978, 513 of us were commissioned as missionaries in the United States and around the world. And I know for a fact, I knew personally dozens of those people who now didn't pay attention to what Jude is saying, especially when dealing with members of the opposite sex. Men trying to evangelize a woman, a woman trying to evangelize a man, nothing necessarily wrong with that, but you should be cautious, especially if the person is deeply trapped in sin. And so sadly, so many of these people are no longer in the ministry. Happy is the person who knows how to be a friend of sinners like Jesus, but also knows how to keep himself holy and unspotted of the sins of this world. So he completes with a note of victory. Now to him who is able to keep you from sinning, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. And all God's people said. Amen. Now, Father, this is your word, not just to the people in Jude's day, but to the people of Community Bible Church. On this, the 40th anniversary of this church, may we have ears to heed the truth that is here. You know that many major denominations, seminaries, Bible colleges, and local churches did not pay attention to this little book, maybe one of the most ignored books in all the New Testament. They did not pay attention. So today they are so far away from the truth, and they are apostates. God, with a deep sense of humility in our hearts, we ask your protection over this fellowship that until Jesus comes, we would be faithful to his word. I pray today for someone who is listening, who maybe they've been exposed time and time and time again to the truth of the gospel, but they've never responded, maybe intellectually, but never with the heart unto salvation. Help them to know that they don't have forever, that to reject the truth is ultimately to set them up to believe a lie. Help some dear person, some teenager, maybe some child, maybe some 
adult. Maybe some old person listening in some hospital, maybe some prisoner listening in a jail to cry out, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you have saved me by your grace, by your blood, I'll not be ashamed of you. And I will spend the rest of my life living for you. Father, may we have compassion on those who are doubting, to those who are caught up in wrong doctrine. May we snatch them from the fire. May we be known for what Jude commands us to do. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.